Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Chapter 47 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Growth of the Roman Colleges. It has been shown by us that Numa, in his wise efforts to improve the civilization of the early Romans and to bring together in a harmonious way the differing elements of the people, had instituted colleges or guilds of mechanics. We shall not mix up this question by any reference to the theory of Niebuhr and his followers, who have not believed in the existence of any true history at that period, but who think every theory connected with royal Rome as merely based upon myth and tradition. We can fairly content ourselves with the fact that when Roman history began to present itself under the authentic form of records, the former existence of these guilds was fully admitted. We find it ample for the present purpose to accept the generally received opinion. While it is not denied that in early Rome such guilds prevail, we may safely believe that their origin is due to some early reformer. This pioneer organizer may be represented by the name of Numa as well as by any other. Treating the subject of the rise and progress of these colleges or guilds, we shall pursue the course of Roman history as it has been generally received by scholars. As we advance to later times, we shall find ourselves all the more helped by the classical writers of the time, and by many monuments and inscriptions. Except the mere question whether they were first established by Numa or by somebody else, in what Niebuhr would call prehistoric Rome, a question of but little or no importance in reference to their connection with the guilds of the Middle Ages, there is no statement concerning them that is not part of authentic history. We see that it has therefore been proved that these colleges were guild-like in their organization, that they had all the legal rights of a corporation, that they elected their own members, that they were governed by certain officers chosen by the votes of the society, that they were supported by monthly contributions, that they had a guild chest or common fund which was the property of the corporation, that they had a special god of their own, just as later on the guilds of the Middle Ages had a patron saint of their own particular choice, in honor of whom they performed religious rites, that they had honorary members not belonging to the craft, who, as patrons of the colleges, and being selected from the wealthiest and most influential families of the Republic or the Empire, protected their interests, and finally, that they had, like our modern corporations, sets of laws, regulations, usages, and a jurisdiction which were all approved by the authority of the state. While tracing the progress of the colleges of artificers through the reigns of the Seven Kingdoms, the long period of the Republic and the rise and fall of the Empire, we need not dwell upon the age of Romulus. Though the narrative of his reign was accepted as authentic by Dionysius and Plutarch, by Livy and Cicero, the unbelief of modern scholars, stimulated by their researches, has led to the very general opinion that the first of the Roman kings was a myth and that his history was founded, as Niebuhr says, on a heroic lay. Yet even he admits that portions of the narrative are to be accepted as matters of fact. 
made up as it is of traditions which were believed from the earliest periods, the reign and the character of Romulus may be seen as an exhibit and pattern of that of the time in which he was supposed to have lived. From these traditions we learn that he was, as the founder of an empire might well be supposed to be, a warlike king, who was engaged in constant contest with the inhabitants of neighboring and rival cities. Though claimed to have been a legislator of the highest order, who exercised his skill in the organization of a new state, the necessity of defending his territory from attack and of increasing its limits gave him but little opportunity or inclination to improve the arts of peace. He is said to have created those religious institutions of the Romans, which were afterward developed into greater maturity by Numa and some of his successors. But he discouraged the study of the arts and forbade the citizens the practice of all mechanical and commercial trades, which were left to foreigners and slaves, while the free Romans were confined to agricultural labors and warlike pursuits. His successor, Numa, was on the contrary noted for his quiet character. During his long reign of 43 years, the state over which he ruled enjoyed a constant flow of peace. There was no domestic troubles and no foreign wars. He was not only a king, but a philosopher, and by a peculiar expression which Niebuhr attempts, but vainly to explain, he was said to be a disciple of the wise Pythagoras. He established the religious institutes and regulations, whose cruder form had been credited to Romulus. He built several temples, especially that of Janus. He reformed the calendar, instituted public markets and festivals, encouraged the pursuit of agriculture and the mechanic arts, and created the brotherhoods or corporations of the trades and handicraftsmen, which continued to exist through the whole history of the Roman state under the name he had originally given them of the College of Artificers. Tullus Hostilius was the successor and a marked contrast to Numa. He was a warlike monarch, and his reign had a series of military successes. He was not, like his predecessor, of a religious turn of mind, and it was only in moments of fear, says Livy, that he made vows to build temples or offered up any rites of sacrifice to the gods. Hynecius thinks it probable that he abolished the craft associations which had been instituted by Numa because they were likely to divert the citizens from military pursuits and to deprive him of the services of active soldiers. Ancus Martius, the fourth king, was the grandson of Numa. He revived the institutions of his grandfather and brought the Romans back from the warlike habits of the previous reign to a study of the arts of peace. With this view, he caused the sacred institutes of Numa to be written out by the Pontifex Maximus upon tablets and to be exhibited to the inspection of the public. Under his reign, the colleges must have revived from the restraint they had endured under his predecessor. The history of the next king, Tarquinius Prisus, if we are to judge from the legends upon which it is founded, affords no reason for believing that his reign was unfavorable to the craft associations. He appears to have been a patron of architecture and of a constructive character. He is said to have adorned the Forum, to have formed the Circus Maximus, to have constructed the Cloquet or Sewers, to have laid the foundations of the Temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, and to have built a stone wall around the city. All these labors would have required the aid of architects and builders, and we suppose that the corporations or colleges of these craftsmen were encouraged by a monarch so well disposed to the improved practice of the arts of construction. Servius Tullius, the sixth king, has had the reputation of a reformer. He was the first to make a census of the people and to arrange them into classes. Florus says that he made the division in curiae and colleges, and that things were so ordered that all ranks and grades of property, station, age, occupation, and office must have been well marked. 
In this reign, the colleges and craftsmen took a recognized position among the classes of the community. Tarquinius Superbus, the last of the race of Roman kings, whose name has been stained by the record of his tyranny, was the enemy of the people. His life was that of a despot. He surrounded himself with a bodyguard to protect his person. He forbid all assemblies of the people, either in the country or in the city, so that no opportunity might be afforded them of consulting on the affairs of the state. He occupied them in forced labors for the construction of the sewers and the completion of the circus. He repealed all the popular laws of his predecessor, abolished the fair arrangement into classes which had been made by the census, and crushed the colleges and crafts sodalities. As the natural and expected result of this severe course, the people rose to the demand of their liberties. Tarkin and his family were forever banished, the kingdom ceased to exist, and on its ruins arose the republic. For a time, after the people expelled the king, the patricians or nobles ruled over the plebeians, or the common people, with a hand not always light. Dissensions sprang up between the two, the oppressors and the oppressed. The colleges of artificers became a subject of suspicion and dislike to the former class, because, as these associations were wholly made up out of the latter, they were supposed to be the breeders of discontent and bodies in which parties of traitors would be nourished. Nevertheless, one of the first acts of the consular government was to re-establish the mild and kindly laws of Servius Tullius, and to permit the free meetings of the people, whence resulted the restoring of the colleges. The severity of a famine which occurred in the year of the city 276 is credited by Dionysius and Halicarnassus to the fact that the number of women, children, slaves, and handicraftsmen who were the classes not producing food was three times greater than that of the citizens who were engaged in agricultural pursuits. Though history, such as it was at that time, is silent on the subject, yet it must be evident that the continual discords for many of the early years of the Republic between the patricians and the plebeians seriously affected the interest of the colleges of artificers and secured to them only broken periods of fitful activity. But when the people had taken from the Senate the tribuneship by which they became a part of the governing power, and the right of holding offices of honor and of entering the priesthood, the colleges of handicraftsmen appear to have been more firmly founded. The laws of the Twelve Tables, adopted in the year of the city 302, confirm their privileges, a decree which Gaius, in his commentary on these laws, thinks was suggested by and copied from the decree of Solon in reference to similar associations among the Greeks. We do find that at one period the Senate had set aside the colleges, but eight years afterward they were restored by the tribune Publius Clodius. From that time the Roman citizens began to pay much attention to the arts and to mechanics. But though the craftsmen were united in the tribes and had the right of voting, they were not highly respected and were not permitted to serve in the army except on unusual occasions such as domestic or civil troubles. Nevertheless, a great many new colleges were created, some by legal order and some by voluntary association. Such, for example, were the colleges of ship carpenters, of smiths, and especially the Collegia Structorum, or colleges of builders, who were the same as the Fabrii Cementarii, or, as it must be literally translated, the stonemasons. But these guilds, or colleges of artificers, were not confined to the city of Rome. They spread into the provinces and the municipal cities, or those which had been invested with the right of Roman citizenship. For a long period, these corporations of workmen pursued a quiet and creditable course, engaged in the lawful pursuit of the various trades and handicrafts. But the number in time greatly increased. 
Clodius, the tribune, in setting aside the decree of the Senate, which had suppressed them, unfortunately extended the privilege to slaves and foreigners of creating new colleges or of uniting with the old ones. Hence, many of the sodalities gradually sank into factions and political clubs and thus became dangerous to the state. This was not the only fault. The classical writers speak in terms of severe criticism of the costly feasts in which many of the colleges indulged. They carried this species of dissipation to such an extent that Varro complains that the wasteful banquets of the colleges had greatly increased the price of food at Rome. These follies were of gradual growth. The colleges continued to exercise their functions during the existence of the Republic and were found in a flourishing condition at the advent of the Empire. We cannot suppose that in a change of government from the simplicity of a democracy to the evils of a monarchy, based on a revolution, the faults of political trickery and rash conduct would not increase rather than abate. Hence, we find the emperors generally opposed to the increase of these sodalities, and there are frequent decrees suspending or suppressing them. But it must be remarked that this opposition appears to have been directed rather against the creation of new corporations than to the wiping out of the old ones. To properly value the true condition of the Roman colleges of workmen, we must refer to the fact that while there were a certain number of them which had existed from the earliest period, being the continuation of the primitive system established by Numa, and which had, except at the various periods of suspicion, been tolerated and even aided by the government, there were many others which had sprung up in later times and which were formed by the voluntary association of individuals. These bodies were for the most part the creation of political factions, whose revolutionary designs were sought to be concealed in the privacy of secret consultations, or sometimes of less worthy craftsmen, who, not having been admitted into the fellowship of the old colleges, were willing to set up a rivalry in business. Thus there had arisen a distinction well recognized in the decrees of the Senate, or of the emperors, and constantly referred to in the various codes of Roman law. This distinction of the bodies of workmen was into lawful and unlawful colleges, or, to use the legal terms, into collegia illicita and collegia licita. The voluntary associations to which allusion had just been made were of the latter class. They were illicit or illegal colleges, and held a somewhat similar relation to the old and lawful colleges that in modern times an unincorporated society does in its privileges and franchises to a corporation. The comparison goes so far at least as this, that the illicit colleges, like the unincorporated societies of the present day, had no recognition in law. In other words, possessed no rights which the law recognized. But in another respect, the analogy fails. The illicit colleges were not only unrecognized, but were actually opposed by the state, an interference to which our associations without charters of incorporation are not subjected. If the law does not protect them, it does not hurt them. They are allowed, if guilty of no violation of the laws, to go on without injury or hindrance. But this was not the happy lot of the illegal colleges. They were repeatedly denounced and suppressed by the state, which looked upon them always as associations of a dangerous character. Some have supposed that it was the policy of the empire to destroy the corporations of craftsmen originally instituted by Numa, and decrees and laws have been quoted to prove that belief. If such had been the case, we should meet with the greatest difficulty in tracing back the corporations of builders of the Middle Ages to the Roman colleges. The total and lasting blotting out at any time of these bodies would naturally destroy the links of that chain of continuity absolutely necessary to identify the one with the other in the progress of history. 
but we cannot find any evidence that the earliest colleges, and especially those of the builders, ever were destroyed. The decrees of the Senate and of the emperors were directed against the new and not against the old associations of craftsmen. Thus, Suetonius tells us that Julius Caesar abolished all colleges except those which had been anciently constituted. The same author informs us that Augustus dissolved all colleges except the old and lawful. A like reservation is made in all references through the Digest of Justinian to any decrees or laws affecting these corporations. It is only collegia illicita against which the penalties of law are to be enforced. It is permitted to assemble for religious purposes, says the Digest, provided that by this decree of the Senate prohibiting illicit colleges is not contravened. Ulpion says that illicit colleges are forbidden under the same penalties as are adjudged to armed men who take possession of temples or public places. There was a very wholesome fear, both in the times of the Republic and other the emperors, of those illegal associations voluntarily assembled. They were felt to be too often for the promotion of factions or the encouragement of political opinions dangerous to the state. When the greater part of the city of Nicomedia had been destroyed by fire, Pliny, then the governor of Byzantia, applied to Trajan for permission to organize for the purpose of rebuilding a college of masons, Collegium Fabrorum, not of more than 150 artisans, and in which he could take care, by leaving out every person who was not a mason, that the purposes of the new college should not be diverted into an improper direction. There is a good deal of suggestive history in this passage of Pliny's letter to the emperor. It indicates, in the first place, that it was not unusual to create new colleges of masons for special purposes, which purposes being accomplished, the colleges were dissolved. Pliny would hardly have asked permission to perform an act of such importance if it had not been allowed by custom. But this brings us very near to the similar custom of the stonemasons in the Middle Ages, who we know were accustomed to create their temporary or special lodges of workmen when any building was to be undertaken. We see in this, if not a proof of the direct continuation of the Freemasons of the Middle Ages from the Roman colleges, which Brother Findel was unwilling to admit, at least a very close imitation in an interesting point by the former of the customs of the latter. In the next place, we learn from this epistle of Pliny that it was not unusual to admit into these colleges of workmen members who were not of the craft, and that this was often done for an evil purpose. On this fact, indeed, was based the objection of the state to illicit colleges. Voluntary associations were often formed, which, assuming the name and pretending to follow the professions of the regular colleges, consisted really, in great part, of non-operative persons who met together in secret to concoct political and seditious schemes. If the illicit colleges had confined themselves to a rivalry in work with the other bodies, it is not likely that the state would have meddled with the contest between regular and irregular workmen, or, as in after times they were called, Freemasons and Cowans. Government does not at this day in any country interfere between constitutional and clandestine lodges of Freemasons. It leaves, as it is probable, that it would have done in Rome the settlement of the trouble to the Masonic law. But it was the admission of these non-operative members into the illicit colleges that converted them from bodies of honest workmen into political clubs that made all the evil and awoke the suspicions and the interference of the state. Trajan, therefore, declined to permit the creation of a new and temporary college at Nicomedia, and he gives the reason for his refusal in these words to Pliny. You have suggested the establishment of a college of masons at Nicomedia after the example of many other cities. 
But we should not forget that this province, and especially its cities, have been greatly troubled by this kind of factions. Whatever name we may give to them for any cause, bodies of men, however small in number, who are drawn together by the same design, will become political clubs. The last two words are in the original heteri, this from the Greek, among which people heteri and heteriari were associations originally instituted for friendly purposes or for mutual relief, like our benefit societies. They became in later times very common in the Greek cities of the Roman Empire, but as Kennedy says, were looked on with suspicion by the emperors as leading to political combinations. We may safely arrive at the conclusion that the primitive colleges of artisans who derived their origin from the time of Numa, and to which we may trace the idea of the medieval guilds of Freemasons, were generally undisturbed by the government, whether kingly, republican, or imperial, and continued their existence and their activity to a very late period in the history of the empire. The attacks upon the colleges of which we read refer only to those illegal and irregular ones which, not confining their operations within the legitimate limits of their craft, were voluntary associations made up, for the most part, of non-operative members who were engaged in party schemes against the powers of the state. This point being settled, we may next direct our attention to the condition of these colleges, and especially the colleges of Freemasons, or Collegia Febrorum, for with them only are we concerned, in the empire and in the provinces, until the final overthrow of the Roman power. The Romans, in the earlier portion of their history, were not noted for taste or refinement. The people were entirely military in their character, and they preferred the rude arts of war rather than the polished ones of peace. Architecture, therefore, was in a debased condition. The principles of building extended only to the construction of a shelter from the weather. Houses were of the rudest form, and, as their name meant, were merely coverings from the sun and rain. These sheds of theirs, says Spence, were more like the caves of wild beasts than the habitations of men, and rather flung together as chance led them, than formed into regular streets and openings. Their walls were half mud, and their roofs but pieces of board stuck together. The builders of the college, established by Numa, could at that time have been occupied only in the most inglorious part of their profession. They were engaged in works of utility and absolute necessity, and could have had no knowledge of or inclination for ornament. The most bungling carpenter or bricklayer of the present time must have greatly surpassed them in skill. During that period, the colleges furnished no architects to the army. The only workmen that we find there were the smiths and the carpenters. They were soldiers who exercised with but little need of skill the mysteries of these trades, being employed in the care of weapons and in the repairs about the camp. Not until centuries afterward were workmen supplied by the colleges and authorized by the state to go with the legions in their campaigns and in their occupation of conquered provinces. Not until about the era of Augustus, that monarch who boasted that he had found Rome built of brick and left it a city of marble, that the Romans began to exhibit a fondness for the fine arts, and especially for architecture. Marcellus, the conqueror of Syracuse, had two centuries before planted the seeds of a refined taste in his countrymen, and invited the bitter words of the monkish Cato by the works of Grecian art he brought to Rome from the spoil of the city he had conquered. To him, therefore, has been credited the introduction of the arts into Rome. But it is to Augustus that architecture was indebted for the high position as an art that it assumed among the Romans. 
From the period of his reign must we date the rise of the colleges of builders, associations of architects, whose trained and encouraged genius produced its influence upon the conquered provinces where they went with Roman legions. Pittacus says in his Lexicon of Roman Antiquities that those workmen who at first confined their labors to the city of Rome afterwards spread over the whole of Italy and then into the various provinces of the empire, furnishing everything that was needed by the army. The government seems to have taken a special care of these colleges, for besides the officers elected by the members themselves, the state placed over them other officers whose duty it was to give them a general superintendence. In the provinces, this duty was entrusted to the proconsul or governor. Thus we have seen that Pliny, as governor of the province of Bithynia, proposed to create a college of builders over which he was to exercise a control such as would regulate it in the admission of its members. In the municipal cities, this officer was called sometimes a procurator and sometimes a propositus. The artisans were under the government of a prefect in every legion, an official who was styled the Praefectus Fabrorum, or Prefect of the Artisans. We are not willing to confuse this officer with the Prefect of the Camp, who was, like our modern quartermaster, of a purely military character. There is an inscription copied by Renasius in which occur the words, Faber et Pref, Faber Leg XX, meaning, Artificer and Prefect of the Artificers. This would seem to imply that the prefect himself was sometimes, if not always, a Freemason, or one of the craft. Under the officer appointed by the state as the general superintendent of the artificers of the college was a subordinate one, appointed also by the state, or perhaps by himself, whose duty it was to inspect and to direct the labors of the workmen, and to see that everything was done in an artistic and workmanlike manner. He was, in fact, what in later times the Freemasons called the Magister Operis, or Master of the Work. When, therefore, in Gaul, in Britain, or in any other province which had been entered by the legions, we meet with a monument of the labors of these Roman Freemasons, which some well-preserved inscription attests to have been the work of Collegium Fabrorum, or College of the Freemasons, we may suppose that it was done in the following manner. In the first place, the men, the materials, the site, the character of the building, and all other matters relating to the general design were determined by the proconsul, procurator, commander of the legion, or whoever had been appointed by the state or the emperor as superintendent of the artificers and the colleges. The workmen being then assembled commenced their labors by congregating themselves or being congregated into a college if such a college did not already exist, and they were placed under the immediate control and direction of a subordinate officer, who was an artificer or an architect, and who regulated their labors, made designs or plans, and corrected the errors of the workmen. In all this, we see a great likeness to the method pursued by the operative stonemasons of the Middle Ages. First, there was a prelate, nobleman, or man of wealth and dignity, who had formed the design of building, a cathedral, an abbey, or a castle. In the old English constitutions, this great personage is always referred to as the Lord, and the work or building was called the Lord's work. Having assembled in huts or temporary dwellings around the site of the edifice they were about to erect, they formed a lodge, which was under the control of a master. There was also the architect or master of the works, who was responsible for the faithful doing of the task. The convenience of military operations, such as the placing or removal of camps and the passage of armies from one place to another, required that the legions should carry with them in their marches architects and competent workmen to accomplish these objects. 
Bergarius, who wrote a treatise on the public and military roads of the Roman Empire, estimates, with perhaps some excess, that the number of architects and workmen engaged in the Roman states in the repairs of roads, the construction of bridges, and other works of a similar kind, exceeded those employed in the building of the pyramids of Egypt and the Temple of Solomon. Of these, a great number were distributed among the legions, accompanied them in their marches, remained with them wherever they were stationed, created their colleges, and proceeded to the erection of works, sometimes of a temporary and sometimes of a more lasting character. Dr. Krauss says, citing as his authority the corpus juris, the general laws and the inscriptions, that in every legion there were corporations or colleges of workmen who were employed for building and other purposes needed in military operations. Therefore, in tracing the advance of the Roman legions into the various colonies, we are also tracing the advance of the Roman architects and builders who went with them. When the legion stopped in its progress and made any colony its temporary home, it exercised all the influence of a conquering army of civilized soldiers over a country of rude, unlearned people. Of all these influences of civilization, the one that has been the most powerful was that of the architects who substituted for the rough constructions which they found in the countries which had been invaded the more refined principles of building. The monuments of the edifices erected in Spain, in Gaul, and in Britain have for the most part disappeared under the destructive agencies of time. But their memorials remain to us in ruins, in inscriptions, and in the history of the improved condition of architecture among these untrained and unlettered peoples. It is true that it grew up in later times, and greatly was it altered by the instructions of Byzantine artists, but the first growth and outspring of the architecture practiced by the medieval guilds of Freemasons must be traced to the introduction of the art into the Roman provinces by the colleges of builders which accompanied the Roman legions in the stream of conquest that was followed by these victorious armies. We have thus presented the details of the history of these Roman colleges of builders from their organization by Numa through the several periods of regal or republican and of imperial Rome. We have shown their continued existence and then their spread into the municipal or free cities and into the conquered provinces, impressing everywhere the evidences of an active and enlightening influence on the art of building. At this stage of our progress, it is proper that we should now pause to examine the memorials of their labors in the several provinces and colonies. Thus we shall be able to establish the first link in that chain which connects the Freemasonry of the Middle Ages and more recent periods of Europe with the building corporations of Rome, the Collegia. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.